Well, this hour I want to talk to you about communication and look at the heart issues for us as parents as we uh, communicate with our kids. I was uh, counseling a, a father and a son, 15-year-old son and a father, and they had a very difficult relationship, and it was very uh, clear even as I began to counsel them that this, uh, this son was sullen, uh, he was very rebellious, he was sitting there in my office, arms crossed, feet spread out, uh, you know, and kind of uh, looking like, go ahead, just try to say something to me. Uh, and the father, for his part, the father was angry and exasperated, and, and I wanted to help this father learn to communicate to, with his son in godly ways. I wanted to help the son to understand the wisdom of his father, uh, wisdom that was uh, thus far in the conversation had been well hidden under his anger. Uh, but his father did have wisdom, did have things that the young man needed to hear. And suddenly, you know, to my surprise, I mean, this man just sprang up from his seat. He, he went across the room, he got in his son's face, and he was poking his finger, not striking him, but just poking his finger this far from his face and, and speaking to him very vituperatively and screaming at him and saying, I'm your father, and you're going to listen to me if it's the last thing I do. And the son just sat there with this look of calculated indifference to his father, uh, not even flinching in front of his father's anger and finger pointing. Uh, it was such a sad scene. And, 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 and often parents who love their children, even as this man loved his son, end up in those kind of angry situations with their kids and or where they're not communicating in godly ways and communicating godly purposes. So I want to think about the heart and, and, and our hearts in terms of communication. I want to start there because your, your paradigm uh, for parenting will dictate the strategies you use in communication. And the, and the focus of these sessions that I have with you and the sessions Marjorie will have is really on parental nurture rather than on control. It's not just how, this is how you can manage your children, but this is how you can shepherd your children. And so we want to be focused on, on, uh, on nurture. But your paradigm will determine how you speak to your kids. And harsh words, scolding words, uh, yelling, track along with parenting focuses that are focused on control and management. But if your model for parenting is nurture, if your model for parenting is discipleship, uh, is to provide insight and understanding for your kids, then your communication style is going to be marked by restraint. It's going to be marked by pleasant words that promote instruction. It's going to be marked by a desire to delight in understanding your kids. And it's these three things that I want to focus on in this time we have uh, in these next few minutes. I want to focus on restraint, speaking with restraint, using pleasant words that promote instruction, and delighting in understanding our kids. But before we, I begin that outline, I want to separate this as much as I possibly can from just a, a, uh, a little mini lecture on on communication techniques, because I have something far more profound than that uh, in mind. And it's not just a matter of techniques, because biblical communication is spiritual. 
biblical communication requires that we, we guard our hearts, that we examine our hearts, that we look inside and seek to understand, is there anything within me in my attitudes or thoughts toward my child that I need to be repenting of? But what I want you to think in terms of, of a life of faith, a life of joyful confidence in God, a, a life of, 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 that facilitates communication, that reflects confidence in God and hope in God and hope in the power of the gospel. Uh, and, and, and Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, uh, talked about the fear of the Lord. And in many, most of the passages I'm going to use with you in this next uh, few minutes have the word wise or wisdom in them. And so I, I want us to focus on that issue of wisdom and, and the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord brings wisdom. Uh, Proverbs 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 15, 33, the fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom. So wisdom comes as we are humbled before God. Wisdom comes as we, <clears throat> as we live in fear of the Lord. Now, not in a slavish kind of fear that he's going to strike you with a bolt of lightning. It's not that kind of superstitious fear. But rather, it's, it's a fear of reverence. It's a fear of awe of God. It's, it's a life of faith, recognizing God is a glorious God. He's powerful. He's majestic. He's able to subdue me. He's able to subdue my child. My hope and communication with my child is not my ability to somehow get his attention and make him listen to me, but it's, it's, it's God. And it's, so I'm, I'm, I'm a person with this full of confidence in God, full of hope in God, full of joy in God, uh, full of reverence and awe of God, wanting to, to, to say with the psalmist, set a watch at the door of my mouth so that I don't say anything that is wicked or wrong. So speaking with restraint, employing pleasant words, delighting in understanding our kids reflects wisdom, wisdom that is found in the fear of the Lord. The qualities that will enable you to speak in helpful ways to your children are spiritual qualities. They're found in awe and worship and delight in God. They're spiritual qualities. Because see what happens when, when, I'm, when I'm angry with my children and I'm yelling at my children, what have I done? I've, I have per <clears throat> personalized their disobedience and I've made it about me. And God is not in that picture. Because in those angry moments where I'm yelling in anger, I'm, I'm, it's all about me. We had an illustration, I'll give you an illustration of this. In 1986, my wife and I and our children, we took a bicycling vacation. Now this may not sound like a vacation to you, but we had hyped this to our kids for many years and we had looked forward to doing this bicycling vacation. We had, for uh, birthdays and Christmas, uh, for a couple of years, we were acquiring bicycling equipment, nice light uh, touring bikes that weighed about 15 pounds and my, our kids had bicycling helmets before helmets were required and when they were still cool. Uh, and we had uh, uh, saddlebags and handlebar bags and we carried everything on our bikes. We rode our bicycles from our home in northeastern Pennsylvania to Niagara Falls and we crossed, went into Canada, 
down on the Canadian side, all the way to Buffalo, across the Peace Bridge, all the way down to Erie, Pennsylvania, and to the Ohio-Pennsylvania border, and back across the state to the eastern side of the state where we live. 650 miles round trip. And we cycled every day between 50 and 80 miles. It was high adventure. We were into it. The kids were into it. They were all teenagers at the time. You could not do that with three teenagers if they weren't into it. Uh, <laughs> but it was, it was great fun. We, they kept a journal every night of our day. I made them write a journal, things that were memorable to them for that day. And we read those journal entries uh, one day at a time after uh, the vacation was over, uh, after family worship in the evening. But uh, in any case, we got to the falls. I had this plan at the falls. I wanted to take a picture of the five of us standing there with our bicycles in front of us and the falls behind us. You know, and because see, all during the whole summer, when our friends said, what are you guys doing for vacation? We're gonna bicycle to Niagara Falls. Oh, they laughed at us and mocked us and said, you can't possibly ride your bikes that far. You're crazy. When you go about 100 miles, you give up on this adventure, call us and we'll come with the pickup truck and bring you and your bicycles home. So, uh, you know, I wanted to take a picture of the five of us with our bikes in front of us, the falls behind us. It was going to be our Rocky picture. Here we are. We made it. And uh, 1986, 1986, there were no digital cameras. This is back in the Kodachrome days, you know. Uh, I had a little canister of film, 36 exposures in that roll of film. I mean, you know, there were no digital cameras in 86. I mean, Pictures were expensive, film was expensive, developing pictures was expensive. You would go on vacation with two rolls of film, and you knew for the entire vacation, I have only 72 pictures for this entire vacation, you didn't take pictures of stupid things like food. <laughs> you know, and, and you didn't take nine exposures of the same picture. You took one. You hoped it would come out. You had no idea until three weeks later when you got the film developed. Did I bump my hand at that? You know, you didn't know. And so, uh, we, you know, we, I want to take these pictures at, at the falls. As I set up, set up the timer, I had sequestered one roll of film for this purpose. I set up the timer and I wanted to take 36 exposures, a whole roll of film, just of this one picture. So I was going to set the timer, jump in the picture, go back, set the timer, jump in the picture. I was going to do this 36 times. It made perfect sense to me. You see, I wanted to make postcards that we could send to our friends and relatives. It was going to be our na 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 postcard. Now, see, we made it to the falls. And uh, after the first few pictures, this did not make sense to my 17-year-old son. He started sabotaging each picture. It was uncanny. He timed it perfectly. Just as the camera would click, he would he put rabbit ears behind his sister's head. He would turn to face the falls. Click. We get a picture of the back of his head. I mean, he spoiled one picture after another after another. Oh, I got so angry. It was of the devil. I mean that truly, because remember that passage in James 3. It says, there's wisdom from below, wisdom from above. Wisdom from below is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. It was that kind of wisdom. I berated him verbally. And, uh, you know... Uh, and eventually, you know, when I ran out of steam and looked around my family, the entire family is under the cloud of dad's anger. Everyone's avoiding eye contact with me. And I, uh, I, I realized I, you know, I had to just humble myself and 
seek forgiveness. And so I got the family together and I apologized to my son. I apologized to him for the words I said. I'm sorry for the things I said. I said things that were mean and unkind. I'm sorry for what I said. I look back at that day now and I'm shocked at my lack of insight because I, I apologized for my words and not the attitudes of heart that were under the words. Because what was going on with me that day? I mean, I, it was all pride, desire to be approved by others, a desire, you know, my son's going to do what I say, I'm going to have control here, and you can't defy me. You know, I, I imagined our friends getting this postcard. Look, at they made it to the falls. What an amazing family. What an incredible leader Ted Tripp must be. How lucky to be one of his children. You see what this was about. I'm, I'm building a shrine for myself. And my son's piddling all over it. That's why I was so angry. You see, those moments of anger come because I'm not getting what I want. And I'm not living a life at that moment that is full of joy in God and confidence in God and trust in God, that sees God and God's goodness and God's ways as primary drivers for me but I'm driven by passions that ought to be repented of. Self-aggrandizement, pride, desire to be approved by others. You see, those hard attitudes are what's behind ugly words. And just counting to 10 doesn't solve that because to speak with wisdom requires the fear of the Lord. It's a life of faith. It's a life of hope in God. It's a life of reverence toward God. It's a life of delight in God and joy in God. And that's really what, where I want to be going. So I'm trying to separate this from just communication techniques. Fear the Lord. Your walk with God, your delight in God, your joy in God, your hope in God, your your desires for your children that are evangelical and glorious and not just about managing them for your convenience. Oh, those are the foundational things that will enable me to speak in the ways that God calls me to speak. Well, a means of communication, I want to speak with restraint. And there are three things under this heading of restraint. Proverbs 17:27 says, a man of understanding uses words with restraint. A man of understanding is even-tempered. <clears throat> Wise people speak with restraint. A man of wisdom, will speak, he may speak with frankness and candor, but his words are going to be framed to benefit those who listen. It's like what Paul talks about in Ephesians 4. Don't let any unwholesome words come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So some qualities of restrained speech. Restrained speech is quiet speech. Ecclesiastes uh, 9.17 says, The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of the rulers of fools. There is power in quiet words. Quiet words of the wise. You see, when I'm shouting, shouting puts emotion in the foreground and meaning in the background. But speaking with, re with, with restraint, uh, Speaking quiet words puts meaning in the foreground and emotion in the background. The quiet words of the wise. See, shouting trivializes your words. Shouting uh, does the opposite of what you want. 
it doesn't give more weight to your words. I used to notice even when I taught in a Christian school 45 years ago, uh, I would say, class, listen to me. I've got something to tell you. I would have their attention much more than saying, class, 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 are you listening? You know, quiet words are more to be heeded than the shouts of the rulers of fools. Another issue of restraint is avoid too many words. Ecclesiastes 6.11, the more words, the less meaning. And how does that profit anyone? It's like inflation. You know, if you keep printing dollar bills, the dollar bills lose value. You keep throwing out a lot of words and your words lose value. The more words you use, the less the words mean. Uh, there's word inflation. Uh, and long conversations can usually be summarized with several sentences. We just simply repeat ourselves over and over. Uh, I remember one night having a conversation with one of my sons. I Margie and I had agreed I would talk with him. We went to a private room. I was carrying on a conversation with him. We're in there about 45 minutes. She's waiting outside, wondering why it's taking this long and praying for me that I would be a man that spoke with restraint. And uh, uh, finally, I emerged from the room, and as soon as she could get me in the corner or aside, she said, uh, uh, well, how, how'd it go? Tell me about your conversation. You were in there for a long time. I summarized the entire conversation in three sentences. Guess what? That's all was needed that night was three sentences. I didn't have to wear my son out with a 45-minute monologue. I simply needed to say what should be said. The more words, the less meaning. Another problem with too many words is when words are many, sin is not absent. But he who holds his tongue is wise. In an emotionally draining conversation, you will find yourself saying unguarded, destructive things, inappropriate things to your children that you should not have said. And afterwards, you'll think, how did I end up there? That's not the conversation I wanted to have. That wasn't what I, where I wanted to go when we went into the room together. But I ended up, you know, caught up with the emotion of the moment and saying things that I should not have said. Uh, when words are many, sin is not absent. I think about this, the way I think about this passage is if you let me speak long enough, I'll say something I shouldn't have said. Uh, it's wiser to use fewer words. A third issue of restraint is pretty obvious, but uh, it's think first, speak second. The heart of the wise, I love the way this puts it in Proverbs 15:28. the heart of the wise weighs its answer but the mouth of the wicked gushes evil. I love the word picture, the, part, the heart of the wise. The wise man puts his words on the balance scale. He puts them on the scale. He weighs his words. He asks himself, is this the best thing to say? Is this the best way to say it? Is this the best time to say it? Is this the propitious moment to say, have this conversation? He's weighing his words. The wicked man, in contrast, just gushes out evil. There's just projectile evil coming from him. I was that wicked man that day at Niagara Falls where I was just projecting evil rather than weighing my words, speaking carefully. It was appropriate to reprove my son for not, if I had just simply reproved him for not cooperating with what I wanted to do. That could have been appropriate. But I was just the wicked man gushing out evil because I had made it all about me. And I wasn't living in the fear of the Lord at that moment. Proverbs 29, 20 says, Do you see a man who speaks in haste? There's more hope for a fool than for him. To speak hastily. Uh, we're being 
we need the grace of Christ to respond with wisdom. I need Christ and Christ's grace. And not to be this person speaking in haste and just throwing out words hastily and carelessly. Solomon encourages careful speech with the observation, a man finds joy in an apt reply, how good is a timely word, Proverbs 15, 23. Do I have these up here? I don't. Um, <clears throat> words carefully chosen are a blessing both to the speaker and to the hearer. Second issue of, of, uh, is our manner of communication. Uh, pleasant words. Proverbs 16 says it this way, the heart, the, excuse me, the wise in heart. Now, the, let me just uh, remind you of what I said. Wisdom comes from where? Fear of the Lord. The, the fear of the Lord man, the wise in heart, the person who's living in the fear of the Lord, the person who's living in confidence to God, hoping God, trusting God, embracing God, the wisdom of heart acquired through the fear of the Lord is reflected in pleasant speech. Words that are kind, words that are good, words that are spoken with love and graciousness promote instruction. Courteous, tactful words make instruction easy to receive. Harsh, loud, demanding, demeaning words don't reflect the gentle confidence of someone who delights in joyful, reverent delight in God. They're reflective of the life of someone who is angry and fearful and controlling. Imagine trying to warn a young teenage boy of the dangers of, of companionship with a rebellious, unruly friend. The task of helping your child receive that warning, that wisdom, is, is a huge task and I make it even greater if, I, if, if he has to surmount the hurdle of my impatience with him and harshness in my manner and communication with him. If I communicate in angry, out of control ways, I make that, that uh, wisdom almost impossible to receive. Pleasant work promote instruction. Proverbs 16.23 puts it this way, the wise in heart, <clears throat> the wise man's heart guides his mouth and his lips promote instruction. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Let me just uh, state the obvious here and connect the dots. We always equate wisdom with the fear of the Lord. So when you read the wise man, you talk about the spiritual quality. The Lord, the, Proverbs, Psalm 25 says, the Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. There, there's a nearness of God and a way in which God reveals himself to the person who is humble and wise in heart and who trembles at the word of the Lord. So the wise man, the man who has the fear of the Lord, gets drawn into God's confidence. He's the one to whom God reveals his covenant. There are spiritual qualities that enable a parent to guide his mouth in ways that promote instruction. So if your words are to bring healing, if your words are to bring sweetness to a child, they must be pleasant words. Pleasant words promote instruction. Pleasant words are like the honeycomb. Now, I want to encourage you, use pleasant words in your home. When, when parents are angry and out of control and yelling at their kids, it doesn't matter how accurate their assessments are, they accomplish nothing. 
And when they, and if you could see yourself, I think if we could see ourselves in those moments where we're, we're red-faced, we're vituperative, we're, we're, we're speaking and we're, you know, and we're flecking a little flex of spit on this kid because we're speaking so vituperatively and our faces are red and our eyes are bulging and we're, you know, at, at that moment, if you could do a selfie and see yourself at that moment, you know, this angry, you know, your kid is looking at you and he's, he's, he's not thinking, wow, dad dropped some more pearls of wisdom on me. This is great. What he's thinking is, look at this guy, red-faced, eyes bulging, speaking, flecking little flecks of spit on me as he talks. This guy is crazy. He's certifiable. He's, he's an idiot. He's, you're, you're undermining instruction. You're throwing a huge hurdle in the way of your child receiving the wisdom you have. And somehow, because we're fallen people in this fallen world, we can have true wisdom, even biblical wisdom, that our kids need to hear, but we can endeavor in our, in our carnal, fleshly attitudes to deliver that wisdom to them in ways that are, are vituperative and angry and out of control, and our kids are not able to receive our wisdom because those angry, that angry man gets in the way of me communicating truth to my child. Your words undermine instruction. Think about it this way. The Proverbs 15.2 says, The wise man tongue commends knowledge, but the mouth of the fools gushes folly. Think about it this way. I want to be that wise person who is, who is, is, uh, is a salesman for truth. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to present truth in ways that are winsome, in ways that are engaging, in ways that are patient and gracious. I want to use pleasant words because the, I, I want to be a tongue that is commending knowledge to my children. No parent who ever demeaned a child saying, saying things like, don't be such a loser, losers hang with losers, ever had a child respond saying, you're right, mom, you're right, dad, thanks for telling it like it is, I needed to hear that. The child just feels sullen, he feels, he feels misunderstood, misjudged, and, and, and you, you add layers of that over time, and you've got a kid with whom your words have no weight because they're not the words that commend knowledge. They're not wise words. And Proverbs 10:11 says, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Do I have this one? I don't have this up here. The mouth of the wise is a fountain of life, but violence overwhelms the mouth of the wicked. Think of your words as a fountain. You want the waters from that fountain to be sweet waters, not waters that are brackish or bitter or uh, the smelly waters. I grew up in northeastern, northwestern Ohio where there were a lot of wells that had an awful lot of sulfur content. And you had to hold your nose when you ran the water because of the smell of sulfur. I don't want to give that kind of, of water to my children. I want them to be sweet waters. The fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. Proverbs 14.27 says, Proverbs 10.21 says, The lips of the righteous nourish many, but fools die for lack of judgment. 
ask yourself, are these words nourishing words for my child? Because you would never think of, speak, of feeding your children dog food. And yet sometimes we speak to our children with the same kind of tone that we speak to the dog when the dog has some, done something inconvenient in the house. They're not, uh, the lips of the wise nourish many. Proverbs 25.11 says, word aptly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. I've pondered this metaphor. Uh, I guess it's a simile. Uh, like apples of gold and settings of silver. What is this proverb communicating? And what I've concluded is apples of gold and settings of silver. It sounds like something very beautiful, something crafted, something thoughtfully put together, something that is a collectible you put in a little cabinet with a light inside the cabinet. And uh, because it's one of your admirable uh, treasures that you have in your house that you enjoy showing to your friends and you enjoy them looking at. It's a beautiful thing. It's, it's crafted. It's put together. It's, it's like apples of gold and settings of silver. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful collectible. And you would not put something of beauty like that together thoughtlessly or impetuously. And that's what it's saying. It's saying your speech will not be beautiful and, and pleasant without effort. <coughs> any more than a beautiful collectible can be fashioned without any thought or preparation. Thinking through, what am I want to say? How can I say it in ways that will be like apples of gold and settings of silver? The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious. Remember what grace is. Grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. God in his grace gives salvation and everlasting life to people who deserve uh, everlasting condemnation. And sometimes parents justify ungracious speech by saying, he acted like a jerk, I'm going to treat, treat him like a jerk. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious words. The third element here is, is to delight in understanding my children. Uh, the goal of communication is understanding. The finest art of communication. If, you ask, if someone asks you, are you a good communicator, we tend to think of our ability to express our ideas with words. But the finest art of communication is not my ability to express my ideas. The finest art of communication is my ability to communicate <coughs> or to understand the person with whom I'm speaking. So, uh, and Proverbs 18 speaks to that so powerfully. Proverbs 18:2: the fool finds no pleasure in understanding but delights in airing his own opinion. How easy is it to do that as a parent? To not delight in understanding my child but delight in airing my own opinion. I had a conversation like that one night with one of my sons. I went to his room. He was about 15. I went to his room at bedtime. We need to talk. I said everything I wanted to say to him. I, I, I didn't say it in unkind ways. I spoke graciously and, and kindly, but I, my focus was I had something to get off my chest that I wanted him to hear. And we got done. I got done. I said, uh, I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to go to bed. So I prayed for him. And so I'm glad we had this chance to talk together. I went off to bed. Within five minutes, he's knocking at the bedroom door. Dad, are you guys still up? Yeah, come on in. What's up? What do you want? So I just wanted to say, when you left the room, you said you were glad we had a chance to talk together. I just wanted to point out I didn't say anything. <laughs> I said, I'm sorry. I had a good talk. You had a good listen. If I had given you a chance to say something, what would you have said? He said, he was a teenager at the time, and this is vintage teenager. He said, I don't know, it doesn't matter now. I just wanted to say I didn't say anything. Now, there's a subtext here, isn't there? 
The subtext is, you weren't interested in what I had to say 10 minutes ago. I'm not going to talk to you about it now. See, I could have said everything I wanted to say that night in the context of asking good questions of my son. I could have <coughs> delighted in understanding him. I could have listened with care and thoughtfulness to him, and that would actually have enabled me to say the things that he needed to hear that were appropriate for me to say with greater clarity and greater wisdom because I was understanding the person with whom I was talking. But I was a fool that night. Proverbs 18.13 speaks to this uh, very with great clarity. It says, he who answers before listening, that is his folly and his shame. It's so easy to do that, isn't it? To answer before listening. I see my son coming. I know what you're going to ask. The answer is no. But dad, what part of no don't you understand? I didn't give you the chance to ask my question. You don't have to ask your question. I'm your father. Before a word is on your tongue, I know it all together. It's in the Bible somewhere. Now they never walk away saying, wow, I'm so lucky to have a dad who's a mind reader. All my friends are jealous of me. This is great. You always understand, even before I speak, you know exactly what I'm going to say. This is wonderful. No, he feels frustrated. He feels like I couldn't even get to first base with you. You didn't even give me the courtesy of hearing what I had to say before you fired off your answer. And I, I read that proverb and I think of how many conversations I had like that where I, I headed my kids off at the pass rather than hearing them out and listening and being a dad who delights in understanding. There's a very perceptive insight in Proverbs 20, verse 5. The purposes of a man's heart are deep waters, and a man of understanding draws them out. There are deep waters in your kids, and we need to be people of understanding who can draw out those deep waters. Uh, my wife uh, had, uh, was counseling a young girl. She's 15 years old, and uh, the parents had a very rocky relationship, and they had had a rocky relationship with their teenage children, and... There were things boiling and surging inside this girl that needed to be tended to. And so Margie was counseling her with, with their permission while we were working with them as a couple to help them to be more effective so that they could be the counselors of their child because that's really God's plan. But in the meantime, as an emergency measure, Margie was engaging this 15-year-old girl. She would ask her questions. She'd say, now, uh, Joni, here's what I want you to think about before you come back next week. And she would give her a couple thought questions, maybe a couple passages of scripture to look at. This kid would come back the next week for another counseling session with page after page, little tiny script, very insightful, deep understanding of her family and the needs of her family and her needs as a person. I mean, there were incredibly deep waters within this kid. But her parents had not been people who had the skill of drawing out those deep waters. They hadn't learned to be listeners. They hadn't learned to speak with restraint, to avoid too many words, to speak quiet words, to use pleasant words in their home. And so this girl had just bottled up and shut them off and iced them out. And there are deep waters in there. We need to be people who know how to draw out those deep waters, who know how to ask good questions, who know how to listen to what's being said, to listen to what's not being said, to follow up with 
further questions that elucidate the things that are said. You know, for example, if you ask your kid, how was your day at school today? He said, oh, it was a good day. What do you understand? Not much. I mean, good day? What made it a good day? I found a $20 bill on the way home from school. You know, or, you know, so you have to ask for the question. Oh, I'm glad you had a good day. What, what made it good? When did it start being good? What made it better than other days? You know, there are a lot of questions you can ask that will give the child a chance to get beyond just simply that single adjectival description of the day. And you can help them to express those, those things. Uh, we want to be people who understand those deep waters in our kids. You know, the, uh, the grace for all this that God has called us to uh, is found in Christ. Second uh, Peter chapter 1 says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through knowing Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. And through these, His glory and goodness, He's given us His very great and precious promises so through them you might participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of this world caused by evil desires. All the grace, the insight, the wisdom, the understanding to engage our children to speak with restraint, to speak pleasant words, to avoid too many words, to weigh our words, to, to, to delight in understanding. The grace to do these things is found in Christ. If you look inside, the cupboard's bare. And it's the fear of the Lord. It's the grace of the gospel. It's the empowerment of God that will enable us to speak to our children with wisdom. Let me pray with you. Father, we come to you with thankfulness that your word speaks to us with such clarity that your word both slays us with, your, with conviction but heals us with the grace of Christ. And we pray for that twin work to be done in each of our hearts today, that we would be slain with conviction of ways that we fail and sin, but we would also be healed with the grace of the gospel and empowered and renewed and enabled to respond in hope and joy. We pray for your help in Christ's name. Amen.